these are perilous times that we're living in. And uh, I don't think that's being overdramatic about it. I think that as believers today, we need to, as much as any time in history, uh, maybe even more so than any time in history, as we find ourselves getting closer and closer to the return of Christ, it becomes all the more important and a responsibility and burden upon our shoulders to make sure that we are clear about what the gospel is, uh, how we share it, to understand the importance of it, uh, not to be casual about it, and even to guard it as the custodians of the faith that you and I are. This is not something that is just on the shoulders of those who are, quote-unquote, in ministry and that kind of thing, but rather, instead, this is a responsibility that we all have as believers. Uh, it is important for us to remember that there is actually nothing more important than the gospel, and the purity of it in its declaration, proclamation, uh, invitation uh, is important. It's uh, it's something that we don't want to confuse. It's something that we don't want to distort. As a matter of fact, the gospel is so important that it becomes really the primary focus of the attacks upon the enemy. You will find that when cults come to your door or when you uh, even have conversations with just normal everyday people out on the street and the subject of Jesus comes up or the gospel in terms of salvation by grace through faith alone, you will find that that point and that person of Christ um, is more distorted and causes more heat and resistance uh, than anything else. Uh, you can talk about Jesus in very, very general terms. He was a great teacher, and oh, I love me some Jesus. Boy, he was just such a uh, loving, caring, and loved everybody and all this kind of thing. You can talk about Jesus on that level. But the minute you talk about him in the exclusive terms with which he spoke about himself, things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me, uh, or his claims to deity and these kinds of things, when you start to make those points, it's as though the whole tenor changes in the conversation. Suddenly, narrow-mindedness becomes uh, the, the the claim, the, the, the moniker that's laid, put upon us and that kind of thing. But let me suggest to you that... Um, that the world is never going to like the gospel. Uh, the world is never going to like the Jesus that is the one in Scripture, but they will always love and clamor toward the one that looks a lot like us, you know, sort of not God or anything, but just a really great person, great teacher, somebody worth listening to and maybe even following. But if we begin to see Jesus as he really is in Scripture, that's going to rub people the wrong way. Let's face it, if you remember what it was like before you were a believer, I remember what it was like before I was a believer. And when people would share Jesus with me, and I grew up in the church, uh, I grew up a Catholic, you know, I mean, I, I knew about Jesus and all this kind of thing. Um, when you talked about the Jesus of Scripture, uh, and, and, and you began to sort of paint that picture, it was off-putting to me, because not because he wasn't still the most beautiful, pure, person that ever lived, deity in, in bodily form, God in the flesh, uh, the word becoming flesh, as John would describe in John 1, it's not because he was anything less than that, but he just no longer lined up with my version of him. Well, my version of him was wrong, and so it becomes important uh, to make sure that as we share the gospel with people, that we don't just sort of concede ground when it comes to the person and finished work of Christ, but rather instead we uh, we make it a point to present him for who he is and explain what it is he did. And so uh, clearly, and without uh, without equivocating, without stuttering, without caving. Uh, and so that being said, I wanted to just read a passage here from uh, Jude. We're going to look at a couple of passages really here in the course of things today. But let me go ahead and invite you to open to Jude. 
It's only one chapter in Jude, but we're going to look at verses 3 and 4. Uh, this is one of those times when I will re, uh, as usual, kind of encourage you to read um, all of these passages in their fullness. You know, for time is always, uh, our mortal enemy is always against us, and so I'm going to just speak to different points along the way here. But each of these passages are worthy of uh, of plenty of time to read and study, and so let me encourage that. But here Jude um, writes these words in verse 3 and 4. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it would appear that Jude had intentional, uh, had, had originally intended to write a, just a letter of encouragement. But he found himself pressed to, um, to speak very clearly about the importance of contending, fighting, wrestling for, standing your ground in the defense of the faith, that faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, there is no new thing about Jesus that we're, um, that we're learning about him. There is no, in terms of theology or his personhood or his finished work, uh, but rather this faith has once for all been delivered to the saints. It is a settled issue, both in heaven and on earth. And so therefore, when we proclaim the gospel, there is no, uh, there really doesn't need to be any ambiguity about it. We can look at what the scriptures have to say in regard to what Christ, who Christ is and what he accomplished, both in his deity and his personhood, and also in his shed blood on the cross, paying for our sins alone by his grace, received then that, that, that finished work appropriated by faith. It is done. It is finished. There's nothing left to add. Uh, so much of the New Testament is committed to bearing that truth out, particularly Paul's writings. We're going through Romans in our verse-by-verse study, uh, where this is so um, pervasive throughout the letter. And so, but Jude here makes the point that this is something that we want to recognize, the importance of earnestly contending for the faith. Uh, it is important that we discern in these times what it means, uh, uh, what the gospel is, and to make sure that when errors about the gospel come, that we're clear about these things. Uh, by the way, on discernment, um, just just to clarify, the idea of discernment, when, uh, for example, Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 talks about uh, the gift of prophecy as a spiritual gift, and right after he mentions prophecy, he talks about the discerning of spirits. Uh, in other words, having the capacity to judge what somebody claiming prophecy would say and determining whether or not that thing lines up with the revealed truth of God. Um, and I want to make that point. This is something that when a word is given, purportedly a, a word from the Lord, uh, it, it is required of believers. It is expected. It is uh, the, the strong uh, uh, drive to make sure that we don't just take in what somebody says as gospel truth, as it were, but rather to judge whether or not what they're saying is, in fact, gospel truth. Well, how do you do that? Well, um, some people would say, well, basically just the Holy Spirit will kind of confirm to me whether or not something is true. He can do that, and I would not even say that he doesn't do that. However, we have, uh, as if I could sort of borrow from Peter, we have the more sure word of prophecy. We have the ability to go to what God has said and to therefore judge and scrutinize what is said. Uh, and, and, of course, my main focus today is in regard to the gospel um, and to decide, based on what Scripture says, whether or not 
those things would be so, much like the Bereans did with Paul. Uh, Certainly, if the great apostle Paul was subject to scrutiny, certainly anyone else, myself included, would also be uh, subject to that scrutiny. So Jude here, once again, urges us, urges believers to earnestly or vigorously with intention and, and, and such to contend, to fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Because again, certain men have crept in unnoticed. How do they creep in unnoticed? Potentially a lack of discernment, those unwilling to scrutinize. Um, there is a tendency among believers uh, to, when they hear what purports to be a word from the Lord, to sort of be enamored by that, to sort of just receive that without really any uh, any scrutiny, because we don't want to be seen as being judgmental. Well, we ought not be judgmental in terms of an attitude, but we certainly should judge. Remember, again, Paul back in his writings to the Corinthians, on the subject of prophecy, said, let two or three speak and let the others judge. The intention being that we don't just blindly receive what is being said. I would argue that, uh, and I would strongly argue that people like Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Creflo Dollar, Rodney Howard Brown, uh, Joyce Meyer to some degree, you know, um, in, in some of the things that she's had to say, many of these errors in teaching and, and, and purported words from the Lord would never have gained any traction if people would open their Bibles and consider whether or not the things that these folks are saying are so. And this, again, is not just the responsibility of pastors and Bible teachers. This is the responsibility of every believer to be biblically astute enough to recognize uh, false teaching and to discern that it is false based on what they understand about the truth so that when that stuff comes down the pike, uh, it is uh, it is rejected outright. Now, again, you cannot overstate the importance of this. Jesus himself in Matthew 24, uh, you're probably familiar uh, with this, especially if you're a prophecy person. Um, this is where uh, the disciples are walking with Jesus around the temple area, and they are enamored. They are really impressed with the, the this beautiful structure uh, that originally had been built in Haggai's time, but had been built upon in the time of Herod the Great. And so now this temple that was in Haggai's time seen as kind of a small, unimpressive structure had been built out into a very impressive structure under Herod, probably second only to Solomon's temple back in the day. And so the disciples, the apostles are walking with Jesus and they're just thinking this is incredibly impressive. Well, Jesus here in Matthew 24 says, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, Luke also references Jesus speaking about this in Luke 21, and we ultimately see historically this happens in 70 AD under Titus Vespasian. Well, the passage in in, uh, Matthew 24 continues, Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, this, of course, begins this beautiful teaching that the Lord gives that we call the Olivet Discourse, where he talks about the scene and scenario in the last days prior to his return and leading up to and including his glorious return uh, in power and great glory. Well, you would think that Jesus' answer to this question would immediately launch into all of these earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and famines and pestilence and, uh, and all of these things. But he starts with something that I think is incredibly significant. And of course, 
lands right in the midst of what we're talking about here. He says this first, of, uh, at the top of the list of things that would describe the days that he is going to be speaking about and that they're asking about. He says this, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And then he goes on. And he begins to describe other elements, but he comes back to a couple of times, this whole idea of there being false Christ seeking to deceive. This is something that Jesus put right out front and said, this is going to be the prime characteristic. The the first thing I want you to watch for as the last days ultimately unfold. Now, of course, the last days technically began in Acts chapter two, after the resurrection of Christ, when Peter uh, and the disciples and 120 come out of the upper room speaking in tongues and all of this going on. Peter quotes Joel 2 and says, this is essentially, this is the beginning of the last days. And he explains these markers that are happening here that, that bear that out. And so false teaching, especially as, as pertains and is focused and directed toward the gospel, certainly was taking place even in Jesus' own time. And then obviously was followed uh, throughout uh, the ministry, not only of Jesus, but the disciples who ultimately carried on the work afterwards. As a matter of fact, Paul himself, uh, an apostle born of due time, as he would describe himself, often did battle with a group known as the Judaizers. These were those that sought to put people back under the law, even though the gospel is a message of God's grace uh, by which we are saved and by which alone we are saved, not of works, lest anyone should boast, as Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2. Well, everywhere Paul went, it seemed that these Judaizers followed them around, him around in his entourage, trying to sort of uh, undermine that message of God's grace to put people back under the law. And so the distorting of the gospel has been with us from the very beginning. And it is no less so even in our day. As a matter of fact, it is, uh, it is, is significant that two of Jesus' own disciples, Peter and John, those among the twelve there, who wrote, um, uh, not as much as Paul, obviously, but Peter wrote two letters, John wrote three letters of gospel in the book of Revelation, uh, and the gospel he wrote and the epistles that he wrote, uh, are replete with discussion about the gospel and the importance of making sure that we understand that there is a spirit seeking to undermine the gospel. And so we see this in, matter of fact, let's turn to a couple of these passages. Um, how about we start in, um, let's go to Peter first, Second Peter. Listen to what Peter says about false teachers. Um, matter of fact, chapter 2 of Second Peter and the book of Jude, where we started today, really are extremely similar. And uh, matter of fact, some of the things that are in both letters, you could tell that either Peter was aware of Jude's writing or Jude was aware of Peter's writing. And one of them borrowed a little bit from the other in regard to their writing. Well, chapter two of Second Peter, Peter just spends this entire section talking about false teachers, both their distro- their doctrines, uh, the ultimately the judgment that will come upon them and their lostness and all these kinds of things. But listen to what he says. Uh, that there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Uh, this sounds almost Pauline, where, uh, where Paul in, in both First uh, Timothy and Second Timothy, both in chapter 4, both books, uh, talks about these things coming. We'll go to those in just a moment. But but Peter here is warning, saying that there, there will be false teachers secretly bringing in these destructive heresies. I think some of the versions say damning heresies or damnable heresies. Uh, and that is what they are. They are heresies that will ultimately lead to the destruction of those who propagate them and who believe them. 
And so these are, in fact, destructive heresies, but they will secretly bring these things in. In other words, they will come under cover of night, as it were. They will seek to slip these things in subtly and secretly so that they don't appear to be false teaching at the outset. This, again, is why it is important for you and I as believers, all believers, to develop a biblically-based discernment, an understanding of the truth of God as it has been given to us in Scripture, so that when those come bringing other destructive doctrines, we can recognize them and call them out. Um, not only would the faith teachers, like the ones we mentioned, but groups like the Mormon Church would not exist if, in fact, the people that were listening to Joseph Smith in the day that he started speaking about this vision of Moroni and such would have gone to the Scripture. Even Paul's own writing, if, any, if an angel appears to you, he would write to the Corinthians, and he preaches any other gospel than that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. Right? The idea that there should be... No paying attention to anyone, doctrinally speaking, who comes with some message other than that of the real and genuine, authentic Christ Jesus himself, both in his personhood and in his finished work. Um, John, in his first uh, epistle in chapter um, chapter 4, famously, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now already is in the world. And it goes on. Uh, and so he said, and of course, the, one of the primary things he was fighting against in his day was something called Gnosticism, the belief that, among other things, Jesus himself, and for various reasons that we could go into, but basically the Gnostic view was that matter is evil, and so therefore the thought that God would, would become incarnate in flesh was unheard of to them. They couldn't accept such an idea. But that is what happened. Christ has come in the flesh, and John makes that point. Uh, exceedingly strongly, both in this section, he starts the letter out by saying, uh, the, um, uh, regarding him who we've seen with our eyes, we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Uh, John 1, uh, in the gospel, chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Ultimately, this to pay our debt on the cross. And so the uh, that heresy was something that people were propagating, and John stood against it, and he encouraged other believers to stand against it. Um, just a couple more passages here, because I, I hopefully we're making our point of the importance of this. But I mentioned Paul's writings to Timothy. Let's look at First Timothy chapter four just for a moment, where in verse one Paul says that the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and command to abstain from foods and all these different kinds of things. Um, but the idea that there will be those that will depart from the faith and propagate these these uh, um, these false ideas that were that were rooted in deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons, and this kind of thing. Uh, it would not be hard to put labels on some of these things today. Progressive Christianity would be one of these, where we reject the cardinal doctrines of the faith and instead come up with all of these crazy ideas about what Christianity is supposed to be in the minds of these progressive, quote-unquote, 
but rather rather than accepting the truth as God has revealed it in his word. And they go to great lengths to undermine the scriptures so that we don't feel like we have confidence in knowing what God said, although they seem to somehow have amazing confidence in what they're saying. Uh, it's just a, an incredible thing. Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, I charge you, speaking to Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but will according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from truth, or the truth, and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of the evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. As a matter of fact, later on then in... Um, uh, actually, going back in the first Timothy four, in verse sixteen, just to cap off this idea, take heed to yourself into the doctrine and continue in them. For in doing this, you will both save yourself and those who hear you. Now, Timothy is a believer at this point, and so when Paul says save yourself, he's not referring to him saving a soul per se. Although for others who hear the truth, obviously this is this would be the case. But in Timothy's case and those he's teaching, Paul is also including in here the idea of saving them from error from false teaching. In other words, preach the word and teach it because in the latter days, there will be those who will turn aside from truth and instead want to hear what they want to hear and they will reject the truth. But you, Timothy, and this would be true for you, pastor, home Bible study leader, women's group leader, teach the word because in doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers from doctrinal error. And this cannot be uh, overemphasized, the importance of this. Now, as we said at the beginning, this is where I'm going to close. Um, we need to be clear about the gospel. And of course, when we say the gospel, once again, we're talking about both the person of Christ and his finished work. If we have the person of Christ wrong, then we don't have a gospel. Because if Christ isn't God, then his offering on our behalf is insufficient if he's just a man like you and me. If we talk about the gospel in terms of what we do to earn our salvation, we are equally in error because it is in Christ's finished work that grace ultimately flows freely to the believer. And so therefore we have to have this correct. We have to have this straight. Anything we add to grace or anything we do to diminish the person and deity of Christ diminishes and ultimately destroys the gospel message. It doesn't actually destroy it, but it it, it, bring, it makes it incredible, non-credible to a non-believer. And so we want to make sure we're very, very clear about these things. Heresy comes in all kinds of different stripes. Uh, bad theology can appear throughout um, in, in any church at any given time. Uh, it is important for pastors, people like myself who teach the word, and for others who uh, take on Bible studies and those kinds of things, not to take lightly the responsibility that we have. Jude, uh, uh, James would say that he would encourage people not to be quick to try and be teachers because there is a much stricter responsibility and judgment upon those who handle the word of God. And so the mishandling of it brings with it severe consequence. And I will tell you this, one of the... Um, even on the level of recognizing that you may have misled somebody through uh, poor exegesis of the scripture or a careless approach to the scripture, that that grates on you forever. I remember as a young teacher learning to handle the word of God, 
that, you know, there were things that I thought I understood that I, I didn't understand nearly enough. Uh, and, and over the years, as you come to realize those things and you go back and you think, oh my goodness, I think I actually said that at one point. Um, it, it grieves your heart. You think about the damage that you could do. If you have a calling to be a teacher, then you should be a teacher and let God ultimately lead and develop you in that way. Let the Holy Spirit bring you through the circumstances in life, introduce you to the right people that can help you grow. But you should know that that's a calling and not just try to take it on. But if you do, do it well to the glory of God. Learn how to rightly divide the word of truth and be a worker that need not be ashamed. Uh, ultimately, as you stand before the Lord one day for your ministry, uh, you want to make sure that you can stand there unashamed and, 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 and just free in conscious, conscience, knowing that you have done the work of God as he's called you to, and you have poured yourself into it as best as you can. The reason why we do that is so that we will avoid misleading people. Now, I'm not talking about peripheral things where there's room for discussion and debate. Obviously, we talk about prophecy a lot here, and I'm always trying to be very careful about the idea of approaching that with enough humility to say, look, uh, this is something we're waiting to see how it pans out. I do have my views, and I, I stand on them, but I do recognize that if something happens differently than what I thought it was, then I'm willing to change my view on that. But no one's going to heaven or hell based on their eschatology. Uh, if you think the spiritual gifts are, are no longer for today, I think they are. Neither one of us is going to go to heaven or hell based on our thinking uh, on, on whether the gifts are today or not, or for today or not. But when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the person of God, when it, uh, of Christ, when it comes to the nature of God and his triunity, when it comes to the gospel message based on God's grace alone, through faith, received through faith, salvation is not through our works or anything like this. We've talked about this a lot. When it comes to that kind of an issue, there is no room, there is no wiggle room, there is no room to um, to hold some differing view, some lesser view of the person of Christ, or some integrating works with grace in the gospel message. Uh, it is important for us to understand the times in which we're living. I mentioned earlier that the last days began technically uh, post-resurrection, so we've been in them for 2,000 years. We find ourselves inching closer and closer to the actual return of Christ and the establishing of his kingdom, um, but we are in the last days. And so, therefore, the things that Jesus warned about, Peter warned about, Paul warned about, John warned about, uh, as we see these things throughout the New Testament, uh, Jude warned about, we want to make sure that we take seriously the message of the gospel, that we share it purely, cleanly, um, without compromise, and without distortion. Um, because in these days, we want to see an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon people where we see folks coming into the kingdom of God, becoming part of the family of God, so that one day when they stand before God, they will do so again, unafraid and unashamed, because they have believed the gospel. So that being said, uh, just an encouragement to make sure that in these last days that people are not misled or misfed uh, uh, when it comes to these things, when it comes to anything scripturally, but certainly when it comes to the gospel, we want to make sure that we are aware that the warnings that were given back in the days of the writing of scripture here under Paul and, uh, and again, John, Peter, and, and, and Jesus' own words in Matthew and such, that we take those things very much to heart and recognize the importance, the very clearly stated explicit and implicit importance of making sure that we are aware of the deception that is out there and the ultimate deception that Satan is after, the ultimate job he is trying to accomplish uh, is the misleading of people that they might never leave the broad road that leads to destruction and find their feet on the narrow road that leads to everlasting life. Rather, they would stay on that broad road. 
Well, that is something that you and I um, have a part to play in helping people, uh, by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, moving from death to life, from darkness to light, from being lost to being found, from being dead to being alive in Christ. So God help us to do that. Father, we thank you for the warnings in Scripture. We thank you for the clear teaching of Scripture on these things. We just pray that, Father, we would um, just take very much to heart the opportunity and the privilege and, frankly, the responsibility that all of us have as believers to know what we believe and to be able to share that good news, to share the evangel, the gospel with those around us clearly, uh, that they might believe truth and not error, that they might come to the real Jesus and not the one that uh, sometimes is misrepresentedly presented, but rather instead the one that actually is uh, the way, the truth, and the life. And so, Father, we praise you and thank you for your Holy Spirit dwelling within us, guiding us into all truth, uh, helping us to understand the Scripture, giving us power when needed, and even the words when needed when we find ourselves in circumstances where we find we, we all of a sudden have that opportunity. We just pray that, uh, Father, in those moments, that we would lean in uh, onto the Holy Spirit in that moment, and that he would take those things that we have learned in Scripture and that he has helped us to learn in Scripture and to share them in such a way as people might see the truth. So we love you and thank you, Father, especially in these last days. Help us to be students of the book that we might be standing on the truth. And Father, we praise you and thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.